but uh, but the the fundamental idea behind it is the law says do this and live. It said that to Adam, and it said it at Sinai, hmm. and it's still hmm. saying it. And um, and and um, that principle it got got rearticulated at Sinai. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign up link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Nick and Peter. And we got a very special guest today, Dr. R. Scott Clark. He's helping us with our season three episode. We are going through the Covenant Theology book and by Crossway. And we are on chapter seven, the Mosaic Covenant. This chapter was written by J. Nicholas Reed, but again, we are reflecting on it, doing our own commentary and reflecting on it with Dr. R. Scott Clark. And so we will jump into that in a moment. Um, as always, make sure you check out our show notes. There is a link to Crossway. You can find a copy of this book for yourself. Follow along with us, chapter by chapter, episode by episode. You can also find a link to the North American Presbyterian Reformed Churches and find a good Reformed Church near you to be well-fed, as well as a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters, which we are a member of. So we will jump right in and start talking about the Mosaic Covenant with Dr. Clark. Hi, guys. Did you say special guest or special ed guest? <laughs> I mean, what do you want to be referred as? Yeah, we can we can go with both. <laughs> you can call me you can call me Scott. That's fine. In, in class, you can call me Dr. Clark. But that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we got the the voice, the Heidelcast, Office Hours Professor at Westminster Seminary, California. If you guys don't know him, um, got his Twitter handle. We'll put all this put all the stuff in the show notes. But we're thankful to have you on. Talk about the Mosaic Covenant, which can be really rough. People understand on the first portion, or they just assume it's one thing and don't see the implications of this. So thanks for coming on to talk about this. Sure. Happy to do it. Yeah. It, I, I, I hope maybe we can simplify it a little bit. It, yes, it, yeah. it, it is a difficult topic, but it isn't that difficult. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, um, my own view of it, I think is actually pretty simple. Okay. And, Good. and so I think I, I mean, I could, you know, we'll, we'll you, we can do what you want with the chapter, but, I think we can boil it down to about a minute or two, frankly. Gotcha. So this will be like a three-minute oh, episode. Shortest then, right? podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> no it, it'll, it, we can take a while to explain it and work it out. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, the bottom line, just so the, the listener doesn't panic or 
you know, become overwhelmed. Um, yeah. All republication is at, at its core is it's two things. One, the same law that was given to Adam before the fall was restated at Sinai. Uh-huh. Right. So Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Yep. And, and if there was a covenant of works before the fall, there is also a kind of covenant of works after the fall, right? Um, yeah. and, what, and, and all that means is the, the law said to Adam, do this and live. And the law continued to say after the, uh, after the fall, do this and live. So mm-hmm. to the degree that if you're outside of Christ, you are under the law in that sense. You are in a covenant of works. <clears throat> And the yeah. law says, do this and live. And all it said to, na- it was saying that to national Israel. And th- there are two aspects to that. One, if you're outside of Christ, the law says, do this and live. And then where it gets complicated a little bit is that, that some say, uh, really since uh, the 19th century, uh, Robert Shaw, sorry about that, Robert Shaw, who wrote a commentary on the Westminster Standards, Westminster Confession, and Charles Hodge, among others, uh, argued that uh, there's a, a sense in which the, the uh, covenant uh, of works was republished to national Israel relative to their tenure in the land. Yeah. And then Meredith Klein picked that up. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been argued by some scholars that there were 17th century authors who taught that. Uh, in my reading, I haven't seen uh, a lot of 17th century authors tying land tenure directly to obedience, but um, I, I'm not troubled by it. I'm, I'm ambivalent about it myself, but, uh, but the, the fundamental idea behind it is the law says, do this and live. It said that to Adam and it said it at Sinai hmm. and it's still hmm. saying it. And, um, and, and um, that principle, it got, got rearticulated at Sinai. Th- that's just basic <clears throat> ecumenical Christianity. I can find you second century writers saying that. Mm-hmm. I can find you medieval writers saying that. That should that should not be controversial. Right. Brass tax. Controversial yeah. comes the controversy comes in part because there have been people in the modern period particularly who've rejected the covenant of works. Yeah. Well that's another problem. And yeah. I'm I'm sorry if you don't like the covenant of works, but it's in the Westminster standards. Mm-hmm. And, and some of us are, are just f- fine with that. And if you don't like the Westminster standards, then you're not going to like republication. That's your problem. You're the, you're the revisionist. You have the idiosyncratic theology, you know, relative to reformed theology. Right. Uh, look at this. Uh, I mean, I could just pull down book after book after book. <laughs> I, one, I, one thing I like about teaching from home is I have my, at least some of my library. That's right, so yeah. <laughs> here's Johannes Coxeus. Now, uh-huh. he's a somewhat controversial figure, but he did an entire covenant theology built around the covenant of works. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, it was that fundamental by the middle of the 17th century. You could build your entire covenant theology around the covenant of works. So it's not like, oh, this is some idiosyncratic view held by three Englishmen. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. everybody in the middle of the 17th century in Europe, in the Netherlands, in France, um, you know, certainly the British Isles, uh, Switzerland, Right, and that gets me to um, the other guy here. The other guy that I grabbed is J.H. Heidegger, uh, the concise marrow of theology. And mm-hmm. so here's a little, uh, this is his smallest handbook. It's a popular handbook published at the end of the 17th century. And uh, he has a whole, it's one of the bigger sections in this little handbook is the covenant of works. Mm. 
So this is a basic thing. So, you know, and it's, as I, as I say, it is in the Westminster Confession explicitly. Mm-hmm. And even Belgic Confession, Article 14 says yep. uh, the commandment of life. Right. And, and so what, what does that mean? What's the commandment of life? Well, do this and live. Mm-hmm. So I think that that in principle, it's already there. Uh, even though the language wasn't used, it was taught by Zacharias or Sinus. It was taught by Casper Olivianus, uh, who, who are the two principal authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. So this is basic stuff. Um, so the covenant, we, we take that as a given, uh, as sort of mainstream, mainline Christianity, a reform, reformed understanding of Christianity. Uh, Augustine taught the covenant of works. So this isn't any some, some strange thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have that, and you have the restatement of the original law that was given at at Sinai, um, w- which is widely held, widely taught, then you have almost everything you need to, to have a doctrine of republication. So republication is, is not at all new. And uh, not only is the covenant of works uh, basic to reform theology, um, but arguably the uh, republication is in, according to Thomas Boston, republication is in the Westminster Confession, chapter 19. Um, so chapter 19, God gave to Adam uh, a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and uh, endued him with power and ability to keep it. That's 19.1. Now, 19.2, listen to 19, listen to the first sentence of 19.2. You ready for this? Here's a, a bombshell. This law, what law? The law that God gave to Adam before the fall, mm-hmm. right? Th- that's a demonstrative pronoun, and it has a reference. This law, what law? The law we just described in 19.1 is the law that's in view in 19.2. It's not, not, not another law, right? right? There's not 19.1a, Right, there's nothing in between. I have this is the latest and greatest critical edition of the Westminster Confession, gives the 1646 text, 1647 text. There's nothing in between 19.1 and 19.2. Mm-hmm. Right, I know right. I'm not pulling any rabbits out of any hats. 19.2 This law, demonstrative pronoun, has a reference to the prior article after his fall, continued to be. A perfect rule of righteousness. Okay, that shouldn't be controversial. That's just the abiding validity of the moral law. Anybody who denies that is an antinomian. Mm. And there's a conjunction. Now we're going to add. So we've that's the first part of the train. Now we're going to add some cars to the train. That's what an and does. Right? We're going to add cars. Right? So you got the guys in the rail yard adding cars. Get your fingers out from between those cars. Here they come. Mm-hmm. Right? You cut them right off. So. And as such, here come the other cars rolling up, and here comes the coupling, chunk, <laughs> was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. Dun-dun-dun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what was delivered? This the law, law yeah. was delivered. And what is this law? It's the law by which God bound himself to Adam in a covenant of works, right? or bound, uh, well, bound Adam and all his posterity. By the, by the way, that's us. 
Mm-hmm. We are Adam's posterity. So if you're outside of Christ, you're under a covenant of works. You're under the law. And the covenant of works says, do this and live. This law continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. So you can say, well, that's the third use of the law, the normative use, fine. And as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai uh, and, and written in two tables, the first four, duty towards God, second six, towards man. But it's, it, is, it is some kind of doctrine of republication. The law didn't just appear de novo at Sinai. It's the law that was given to, and, and as such, perfect rule of righteousness. I don't think you can boil that down to the third use because uh, it's the perfect rule of righteousness in the first use, which Mm -hmm. is what is at question here. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, those people who think that uh, republication is some hitherto unknown novelty, and I've read that. I've seen the documents from committees saying this is some Pelagian scheme invented by an Old Testament professor uh, who you know? Who taught part time at Gordon Conwell, part time at at uh, in, in California? Um, that's that's just crazy. That this is a a historic traditional view that's been taught by many many reformed people. I it, it's in Witsius, it's in Usher, it's in uh, Thomas Boston, it's in Benedict Pictet, it's in Richard Sibbs, Casper uh, Olivianus, it's in David Dixon, it's in William Perkins, William Ames, Robert Rollick, uh, J.H. Heidegger, um, Cooper, John Colquhoun, Amandus Polanus, uh, George Buchanan, John Owen, the marrow of, of modern divinity, John Bolton, uh, Samuel Petto, Charles Hodge, Gerhardus Foss, Louis Burkhoff, and, and Robert Shaw, just to name a few, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, but so anybody wants to tell me, oh, this is some crazed novelty that we No, what it means is that the version of reformed theology that you were taught is a part of the sort of modern idiosyncratic version of reformed theology. One of the many modern idiosyncratic versions of reformed theology that were taught in the 20th century. And you just assume that this is what people have always believed, but it isn't, of course, what people have always believed. So I'm, I'm, I'm addressing the people who have heard something about this and have been told that it's some sort of wild uh, yeah. Yeah. novelty. So for to just back it up for yeah. a little bit, uh, this might be more newer to a newer topic to a lot of our audience too. So they have sure. maybe the first idea, the first time they've ever heard of republication or the dichotomist position, which is the most popular reformed position on this where it is, uh, now that's that that is Reed's category, so yeah. right. So not it's not that. It, so I personally, you know, those taxonomies are fine for explaining things, but the listener shouldn't think or the viewer. Are people going to be watching this? No, just listening. Oh, listen. oh good. I, yeah. <laughs> the idea of people, yeah, that would be terrible. I don't want people to have nightmares. Um, the, <laughs> you so have people, a new mustache. Yeah, yeah of you. Yep. People uh, hearing this for the first time shouldn't think that everybody knows these categories. Right. Right. Because there have been categories that people have been making of the different views on Moses and Republication since the 17th century. And that's just that's one way of, of describing them. Okay. But anyway, yeah. carry on. So, yeah. yeah so, so, oh, sorry. So, just to make it also more simple and concise, is it's an administration of the covenant of grace, the Mosaic covenant, right? And so, yes. maybe, maybe to help kind of catch everybody up into this part of the conversation, 
maybe we could rattle off like the who, what, when, where, and why a little bit, like the who, Moses and Israel, when, when was it, how long after Abraham, where, like in the exile from Egypt to the promised land, why, because God remembered his covenant with Abraham, is there anything else to fill in, you know, like the typological obedience based on um, grace? So after, after the uh, fall, God said in Genesis 3, uh, uh, 15, right? Uh, I'm going to send a, a redeemer, essentially. Seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, mm-hmm. and the, the serpent will strike his heel. So there's your first articulation of the covenant of grace. Uh, so Adam broke the covenant of works. He, he broke the law, and he plunged himself and all his posterity into death and corruption. Um, then God uh, repeated the covenant of grace to Noah, in Genesis six, and he said, uh, "You know, uh, um, you know, I, Noah found favor in my eyes, found grace in my eyes. Not by the way, because he was uh, righteous, particularly, but because God is gracious. That's the nature of the covenant of grace, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's unconditional. God graciously saved uh, Noah and his little church, right? The the uh, eight all eight and all souls mm-hmm. on the ark, and of course, the ark was a um, a picture of Christ." And they weren't saved by the water. They were saved uh, in the midst of it is what through means, Peter Mm -hmm. says. And so there's an administration of the covenant of grace. So there's one covenant of grace, and now we've seen two administrations. Then there's an Abrahamic administration. Uh, God said, uh, I'll I'll give you as many uh, uh, offspring as there are stars in the sky and sands on the sea, and I'll give you land. Uh, And then he said, uh, I'll be a God to you and to your children after you. That's uh, 12, 15, and 17, Genesis 12, 15, and 17. So there's the all uh, manifestations, aspects of the covenant of grace. And uh, so God made a a gracious covenant with with Abraham, or, or, you know, uh, there's another administration of the covenant of grace. So one covenant of grace, multiple administrations. Mm -hmm. Now we get to Moses. Uh, Abraham is about uh, 2000 B.C., Moses, typically, historically, traditionally thought to be about 1600 BC. Some people say 1300 BC. Uh, I'm an old school guy. I still think in terms of 16th, basically the 16th century BC or so. Um, And uh, God came to Moses and entered into a national covenant, right? So now uh, the Abrahamic has become narrower and uh, it's going to be administered through a, a national people. And um, he's going to deliver this people out of Egypt. He's going to uh, uh, create a, a state out of them. And um, he's going to institute, as the rabbis counted them, 613 commandments. So you have the Ten Commandments, the moral law uh, that was given to, to um, Adam, and it's known by nature, by everyone. Love God with all your faculties, your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole moral law. And then now he's going to institute religious laws and judicial laws on top of that. So you have the three aspects of the law, the, the, the three divisions of the law. And uh, two, two of them are instituted under Moses. Moses is not Abraham. Moses is a distinct thing. Moses is national. Moses is temporary. And, um, and uh, so there, this is a kind of an addition to the Abrahamic covenant. And I, I get that from uh, Galatians chapter 3. Paul actually argues this very case in Galatians 3, uh, starting in verse 15, I started, uh, I started using my, um, I got one of these fancy Bibles, and I started using my, uh, my paper Bible again. I had been using just electronic hmm. Bibles for the last several years. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, 
So uh, Galatians 3, I, I really like this. Um, uh, Paul uh, is arguing to the Judaizers, hey, uh, no, you don't understand uh, the way God has arranged things. Starting in uh, verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, <clears throat> even a man-made covenant, right? no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offsprings, meaning many, but referring to one and to, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after. So the law here is referring to Moses. That's just shorthand for Moses. So 2000 BC, God made a covenant with uh, uh, Abraham. He renewed the covenant of grace. He, that's a, a, you know the second major administration or third major administration of the covenant of grace. Uh, now Moses, a fourth, 430 years, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So the Abrahamic covenant is basic. The Abraham, Abrahamic covenant is prior, and the Mosaic covenant is a temporary and, and typological, illustrative of things that were to come. Why then, verse 19, the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come uh, uh, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That's Moses. Now, an intermediary implies uh, more than one, but God is one. Uh, now, before faith, verse 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the, uh, uh, the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our uh, schoolmaster, is what he says. Our pedagogue is a better translation than guardian. Not a guardian. Guardian protects you. Uh, the, the schoolmaster here, the pedagogue, he used to, in the old days, you, you don't know this, but in the old days, teachers used to beat their students. <laughs> and when I was in school, teachers used to beat us. They had switches. Uh, the principals had switches. And if you broke the law, you got sent to the principal's office. He bent you over the desk and he smacked you on the bottom with a paddle or a switch. That's what they, in the old days, and Nick, and Nick says, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had my I had my own desk in the principal's office yeah. in second grade. I'm loving Nick's expressions for these. They used to they used to drill holes in the paddles so they'd have more it'd be more aerodynamic. <laughs> That's right. This is why guys like C.S. Lewis were so brilliant because they had teachers that beat them on the head and the knuckles <laughs> when, when they didn't memorize their Latin and their Greek. Yeah. Um, and that's how it worked in the ancient world. That was the way it was basically until you know 1990. Um, or more or less, not probably mid 1970s. Anyway, um, so that's what Paul is saying here uh, that God added the law, the Mosaic covenant, on top of the Abrahamic in order to teach people the greatness of their sin and misery. Mm -hmm. and, and so you have this national covenant, this temporary covenant uh, with a legal quality about it, uh, where the people uh, take the same kinds of vows that they took, uh, that they took. Um, you know, basically, that the, the, they were similar to the vows that uh, Adam took I implicitly. Mm -hmm. So you so you look, for example, at Exodus twenty four. After Sinai, Moses came uh, and told. This is uh, twenty four three, uh, reading from the NIV, and told the people all the words that the, uh, of the Lord, and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, "All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do." And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar uh, at the foot of the mountain uh, and uh, 12 pillars according to the tribes of Israel. And he set young men 
uh, of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and, and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen. And, and now watch this. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all, the, uh, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will obedient. Now listen to this, verse eight. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you uh, in accordance with all these words. That's the national covenant mm -hmm. that God made with national Israel. That's new. That's different. That's temporary. That's typological. It's an administration of the covenant of grace on the one hand and an administration of the covenant of works on the other. And you have to have both of these simultaneously. It's not one or the other. It's both and. Mm -hmm. It's not covenant of works for uh, salvation, um, but it's a, at least a restatement of the law to teach them the greatness of their sin and misery. And uh, that's the pedagogical use of the law. And all these people are saying, we're going to do this law. And of course, if you know anything about what happened thereafter, they proceeded not to do the, word, the words <laughs> yeah. of, of this law. They, they did learn what gold tastes like. That's right. Yeah. Right. They, and, and they, and ultimately they were thrown out of the land because of their disobedience, yeah. but they were, they were also allowed to stay in the land despite their gross disobedience, despite the fact that Moses broke the tablets before he even got down to the bottom of the mountain because he saw their idolatry. So they broke the covenant even in, in that sense before it even began. Yeah. Um, so God was gracious. He was patient. He was kind. He was merciful. But eventually he does kick them out of the land, sends them into exile. And that's all part of the process of, of redemptive history. But at no time was anybody ever saved by anything but, but by grace alone through faith alone. Mm -hmm. right. But there is this legal um, overlay on top of, uh, of the covenant of grace. But it always continued to be a covenant of grace. Yep. And I would say even ultimately the people stayed in the land as long as they did because of grace. So it's not even strictly a legal covenant. Yeah. And that's why I, I like to talk about the pedagogical function of republication. It was teaching those people, listen, you are never going to be able to do it. That's why Jesus said to the young man, go and sell all that you have in Luke 10, 28, give it to the poor. He was, he was preaching the law to, the, to that young man to teach him the greatness of his sin and misery. And he went away sad because he couldn't do it. And what he, he should have said, uh, teacher, you're, you're right. I can't do that. I need you to save me. Hmm. That's what he should have said. Mm -hmm. He wasn't giving this guy a plan for his life and a way to be prosperous and successful or, uh, or anything like that. Yeah. So is the, the law essentially um, for the elect leading them towards repentance yes and humility in light of the law because the law is god's perfect standard and it's supposed to be this realization of your sin how far short we are but it's also a typological obedience for the elect to say to to um look forward towards the messiah and what he's going to fulfill because he Jesus is yeah, going to fulfill right. the Mosaic law, but people outside the elect um, and the non-believers, this is, is this more of a condemning law, more of a curse? Sure. I mean, of course, when you're administering the covenant of grace, you don't know who is and isn't 
elect and you don't guess, you don't try. So it it is true that ultimately the law uh, condemns those who are outside of Christ. It drives those who are elect uh, to new life, you know, to Christ and the the spirit grants them regeneration and, and, um, and faith and so forth. And so, yeah, that, that's the way the, co- the covenant of grace has always essentially been the same thing and the same principles have always been at work. So you could have said this about, about the old covenant people under Moses. So I'd like to distinguish between the Old Testament more broadly, it's sort of artificial, but everyone, you know, out, you know Noah, Abraham, David, it's all part of the Old Testament, or we could just say types and shadows. That's even probably better to say. And then the Old Covenant specifically refers to Moses. I wish people would get this. It's, it's pretty plain in the face of the New Testament. Second Corinthians 3 uh, is specific about this, that the, that the Mosaic is the Old Covenant. Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 repeatedly refer to Moses as the Old Covenant. As I always try to remind people, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 says, the covenant I will make in those days, says the Lord, will not be like the covenant I made with your forefathers when I led them out of what? Not Ur of the Chaldees, not Ur of the Chaldees, that's Abraham, when I led them out of Egypt by the hand. That's the Mosaic. So the new is new relative to Moses. It's not new uh, relative to Abraham, because Moses is temporary, Moses is typological, Moses has this legal character to it that Paul says in Galatians 3. So, so I mean, I could have read to them, you know, Heidelberg uh, 2, how many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? Three things. First, the greatness of my sin and misery. Second, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. Uh, from where do you know your sin and misery? Or from where do you know your misery? Out of the law of God. Question three. So that's one of the principal functions. It's arguably the principal function of the law to teach us the greatness of our sin and misery. And that's what God was doing to Israel for, uh, I would say, the 400 years, um, you know, of the, of the, or more of the, of the Mosaic covenant. Wow. Right. So it's roughly 2000 years, uh, Abraham. Um, and then, uh, uh, 1600 years or so, that's Moses. And then a thousand years before Christ, that's David. Uh, roughly 500 years before uh, Christ, that's exile. So you got you, you essentially have 1500 years of the law prosecuting the people leading up to the coming of the Messiah, uh, the incarnate Son of God, uh, uh, born of the Virgin. Right. And uh, yeah. boom, here he comes. And um, and they've been prepared for it. And then the last, what's the last, who's the last Old Testament prophet? John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And what's he doing? Calling for repentance, preaching the law, accusing them of their sin, and dry, preparing them and driving them to Christ. And lo and behold, there he is. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So kind of a, a bridge stance. And you, you talked about it a little bit. I know you've posted a couple articles about how Abraham's not Moses. And uh, the chapter talks about it a little bit. And so and I, and I get this because people talk about Exodus 22 and 3. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so they kind of get like a different understanding of the Mosaic Covenant because they connected a little bit closer to what happens with Abraham. So if you can kind of talk about like why we should distinguish those two. Yeah, no, I I, I was I'm so I'm working right now on a, uh, trying to finish my commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism and making that very point. And I just posted something like that too on the on the Heidelblog that we don't read the 
the uh, the law Exodus twenty the way Calvin did, so uh, or Ursinus or, or the Westminster divines. So it's right. Um, the, the, there is a prologue in Exodus twenty, Exodus twenty verse one, and uh, Elohim spoke all these words, saying, "I am uh, Yahweh your Elohim, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." That is a gospel declaration. Mm-hmm. So the Mosaic Covenant is also an administration of the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make it the Abrahamic, mm. right? Not So David, uh, the Davidic is an administration of the covenant of grace. Uh, the Noahic is an administration of the covenant of grace. The Adamic, after the fall, is an administration of the covenant of grace. That doesn't make them all uh, Mosaic, mm. right? Those are all administrations of the covenant of grace. It's not the case that if administration of the covenant of grace, then Mosaic, no, uh, Moses is a distinct administration. It's a legal administration. This, this is what people struggle with. And I will say my Baptist friends particularly struggle with this. As I always say, every Baptist I've ever met has a Moses mask in his pocket. And whenever he runs into Abraham or Noah or anybody else or David in the Old Testament, he quick pulls out that Moses mask and puts it on top of the, uh, of the guy, particularly Abraham, and turns him into Moses. But he's not Moses. Abraham is our father. Right. No, Paul doesn't say in Romans 4 that Moses is our father. Paul says that Abraham is our father. Yeah. That's the fundamental continuity of the covenant of grace. And Moses is distinct. Moses is temporary in a way that Abraham is not. The New Testament consistently presents uh, the, the new covenant as a renewal of the Abrahamic covenant without the types and shadows. Mm. And it's also, in some ways, a renewal of the Noahic covenant. I've argued that from First Peter, written a whole commentary on First Peter arguing that the way to understand first Peter is that it's, it's a way of explaining as it was in the days of Noah. Mm. So, so it is for us now. So we live, we're under the Abrahamic still, and we're under the Noahic in a way still. Yeah. So it, um, it, it's true that, that, that is a gospel word. And, and then the first commandment comes, you, you shall have no other gods before me in verse three, that's the law. And so, yeah, there's a there's a distinction here between the law and the gospel right here in Exodus 20. But mm. that doesn't turn this into Abraham. Mm. But it it but it is a reminder that it it is both an administration of the covenant of works in terms of the republishing the law uh, that was given to to uh, Adam, and it's also a republication of the covenant of grace. We should yeah. say that too. It, so that dual character really throws people, mm. uh, but it shouldn't if we understand that both principles are always at work. Hmm. And it's just, this is just a redemptive historical way of saying that the principle of the law is always at work and the principle of the gospel is always at work. Hmm. If we had those categories, law and gospel, this whole thing would not be as complicated as it is. That's what people are really wrestling with. Yeah. Because they've, they've never heard that the law is one thing. It says, do this and live. And the gospel is another thing. Christ shall do from the point of view of the types and shadows, or Christ has done from the point of view of the fulfillment. Mm. Yeah, so, so in it's, other words, it's all, real, real quick, so it's almost so maybe to make it concise for um, people who haven't heard this, it's you're almost collapsing if you look at the prologue. So, the first two verses of Exodus 20, you're collapsing that with the rest of it, assuming all of it's talking about the same thing, versus it saying this is an administration, yeah. but here's another piece of this administration that points to the administration. These are two different kinds of words inherently. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
that's a declaration of gracious salvation, right? Therefore, yeah. implicitly, you shall have no other gods. That is a different kind of word. Mm. Mm. You have a you have a, a declaration, and then you have a command. Two mm. different kinds of words, mm. and it's the failure to distinguish those two different kinds of words that has plunged evangelical. Uh, churches, Christians into such darkness because we've lost a basic Reformation distinction. One of the things that Luther rediscovered in the Reformation um, that I think is arguably in Augustine and certainly in Scripture is the the distinction between law and gospel. It's not Old Testament, New Testament. It's the difference between Christ shall do or Christ has done on the one hand and do this on the other. Mm -hmm. And, and, the medieval church had lost that. Luther rediscovered it. He gave it to us. All of our reformed writers uh, treasured that distinction. Um, Casper Olivianus, the you know the guy on whom I'm, I've done work now for 25 years, he said we retain this distinction between law and gospel because it's basic. Um, William Perkins says you can't preach any passage of scripture till you know how it relates to the law and the gospel. Not Old Testament, New Testament, but to do or done, yeah. right, to put it in the simplest possible terms. Um, Calvin said the same thing. Um, Theodore Beza, his successor, said the biggest problem plaguing Christ- Christendom today is the inability of people to distinguish the law and the gospel. This is a basic distinction that people have just lost, and particularly Reformed people and, and from some schools of thought within modern Reformed Christianity have taken to saying for the last 30 years, or 40 years. Um, well, law gospel, that's a Lutheran thing. And uh, we, we're unreformed. Therefore, I don't believe in, in the law gospel distinction. Poppycock, bunk, and rubbish. It's mm-hmm. complete and utter nonsense. Anybody who says that doesn't know anything about the history of, refor- of reformed theology. Doesn't understand Calvin. Doesn't understand the reformed orthodox. Doesn't understand the basics of reformed theology. And so, listener, if, if you've been taught that, I'm sorry, you've been misled. And if, if you go to heidelblog.net slash resources, go through those resources, uh, look for the one on resources on distinction between law and gospel, and that will get you started. Hmm. And there's a bibliography in there, and, and uh, it, it, it's easily demonstrated. Listen, hmm. I'm just a kid from Nebraska, and I can see it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not that, you know, I'm not that clever. I'm just, I'm just, per, I just persevere because I don't know any better. It's the way <laughs> mm-hmm. I was raised. And I can see it. So any, I think anybody can see it. Hmm. So the administrative covenant was temporary, but the law and gospel that preceded it also extends to today. Yeah, the substance. So Casper Livianus uh, distinguished between the, the, the substance of the covenant of grace, right? So mm-hmm. here's a book on the, on, the whole, on the, right? So that which makes the covenant of grace what it is, and, and it's external administration. Yeah. And then, again, people struggle with this. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't know how to make that distinction. So yeah. the, the, that which makes the covenant of grace what it is uh, never changes. But the form it takes changes. So think about your computer. What was the first computer you ever had, Nick? What did it look like? <laughs> it was a big, huge box square with a... Glass screen is DOS. I think it was those those operating system. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> had Flogger I, on it. <laughs> okay, my, fir- <laughs> yeah. my my first computer that I got in 1985 
uh, was um, an Atari, right? Oh. And it, it was, like you say, it was huge. And it had the CPU built into the keyboard, which was both clever and, and bad. Um, and uh, now what am I working on? I'm working on a, on a Mac, you know, with a big flat screen, very thin. Uh, mo and otherwise, I'm working on an iPad or, a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a notebook computer. So the, the, the shape of the computers have changed dramatically. And I guess in some ways the innards have, have changed too. They've become more efficient. But the things that make a computer a computer haven't fundamentally changed, right? Um, so the substance is the same, mm -hmm. but the, the, the administration, the external form of it changes. And that's the way it is with the covenant of grace. And all, that's why I say one covenant of grace, multiple administrations. So there's a, an Adamic after the fall, a Noahic, Right, that's very wet <laughs> administration of the covenant <laughs> of, of, of grace. Um, the the Abrahamic, you've got circumcision, so the introduction of, of blood, uh, a bloody type and shadow. Looking forward, then you have the mosaic, the introduction of all of the sacrifices. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the whole religious system, and then the civil judicial system, all of that. So you have the three offices now: prophet, priest, and king. These are all ad administrations, and then you have the Davidic. Right, where they're sort of centered on the king. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Moses is the prophet, and, and you have the judges uh, in between. So th these are all administrations of the covenant of grace. But the covenant of grace has always been, I will be a God to you and to your children after yeah. you. Um, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as imputed, credited to him as righteousness. God was gracious to Noah. Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of God. That's the essence of the covenant of grace. Mm. And it doesn't change. And, and so that's why uh, uh, Peter says, you know, uh, people don't like to, sometimes they don't like to hear this, but uh, it, it is, as my friend Don Trike says, you know, he's from Wisconsin. He says, it's in the Bible. Um, <laughs> in uh, Acts 2, 38, I'll get there here. I'm still getting my fingers back up to speed, <laughs> paging through here. Um the, the, you know, the, the people, uh, so he's preaching essentially Psalm 110, and he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel preaching to these Israelite men, uh, therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and, and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because, dun, 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 the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself or will call to himself. And that is the Abrahamic covenant yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. He, so when push comes to shove, he rearticulates the, the covenant of grace to these Israelite men who've been hearing this covenant all their lives, who, who identify themselves as children of Abraham. And he says, I got your Abrahamic covenant right here. And it's by grace alone, through faith alone, mm -hmm. in Christ alone. And, and the ones who believed, right, they understood that. Oi, this is it. This is what God promised to Abraham. God did come. And he... he, he, he Right, he walked through the pieces, and lo, and the one who walked through the pieces took on human flesh, hmm. and here he is, and we crucified him, hmm. but he's but God raised him from the dead, and he's our savior, he's our he's our mediator. Hmm. 
yeah, I think if, we're oh, sorry. I was just gonna say I, I think where a lot of people might be getting uh confused with the mosaic covenant is they think either it's not in existence anymore today, it's really old and 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 annulled and gone, so therefore the law is gone with it, or they think the Mosaic Covenant is still in existence today, and we still have to do all those same law. Yeah, oh, with yeah, it. yeah. I, I think you're point. exactly you're exactly right, and so uh, this is where it helps to do what the church has always done since the early church through the medieval church, through the Reformation church, through the Reformed you know, Protestant Orthodox. We've always distinguished between three aspects of the law uh, the, as it was given under Moses. There's the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. There are the ceremonial laws, the religious laws, the hand-washing laws, and the judicial laws. And we've, we all agree, have always agreed until really very recently, that the, the ceremonial laws and the, the judicial laws those uh, all expired with the death of Christ. The moral law is called the moral law because it's grounded in the nature of God, and it can't expire. Now, it did get articulated at Sinai in a temporary tip typological way. So the land promise in fifth commandment, that's no longer in force. Uh, the Sabbath, we recognize, has changed. That's why we talk about the Christian Sabbath. God mm -hmm. changed the Sabbath by raising Jesus on Sunday morning. Right? So the typological Sabbath is done, but the Sabbath per se is not done. It's built into creation. Then th here's the other thing that evangelicals struggle with. They don't have a doctrine of creation. They know how long the creation days are, but they don't have a category of creation or nature, things that are built into the nature of things. The Sabbath is built into the nature of things. Marriage is built into the nature of things. Right? This is why I'm against gay marriage. It's against the nature of things, as God has constituted uh, creation, reality, right? Um, uh, you know, so marriage is what it is because of creation. The Sabbath is what it is. There is a Sabbath principle built into things. Um, right? Jesus appeals to, to the beginning. It was not so from the beginning, right? Um, so, the, the, so there is that, that uh, there are those sort of uh, basic categories and the moral law is part of the fabric of things. And so Paul says in Romans 1 that people can know that God is by nature, and they know what the law is in, in, in Romans 2, 14 and 15. They know what the law is by nature because it's in their consciences or on their hearts, right? They know intuitively that they, that they ought to love God with all their faculties and their neighbor as themselves. They know that they shouldn't steal. They know that they shouldn't be idolaters. They know that they shouldn't murder. They know they shouldn't lie. They know all these, all these things from nature because it's built into the nature of things, and it's a reflection of the nature of God. So the, the moral law didn't go away. And, and yes, when the, the Mosaic Covenant is described in Hebrews as obsolete, um, in the Second Corinthians 3, as fading away, right? The, the, that is true. Uh, inferior, Hebrews says. Uh, that is, those are all true. Uh, but the Ten Commandments, the moral law, is not obsolete. It's not inferior. It's not fading away because it's grounded in the, in the nature of God and the nature of things. Hmm. Right. So yeah, yeah I, that's why I I don't care what you eat. You're free according to First uh, Acts ten forty five. You can eat whatever you want. It's all clean. God said, "Don't call dirty what I've called clean." Thank you. I have my preferences. I, I'm not going to eat bugs, even though they come out of the water. If you want to eat bugs that come out of the water, that's fine. There's, right? There's, there are no prohibitions on that sort of thing. Yeah. I love, I love smoke, smoked pork, right? My wife it, it smokes 
for she has a smoker out back and she's really good at smoking beef and pork it's wonderful you don't want to eat pork that's fine but there's nothing religious about it you want to get circumcised for medical reasons great you don't want to get circumcised fine i don't care right Mm -hmm. those things are all adiaphora they're all done Uh, that's why the the judicial laws have been fulfilled they've expired according to uh, westminster confession 19 four right we're not under those things anymore all those types and shadows are done mm-hmm. and the ceremonial is gone because christ is the ultimate sacrifice mm-hmm. but yeah, the, behold the yeah. lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world the, the john the baptist told us we don't need to keep slaughtering lambs anymore because not, Christ- not for religious purposes no if you want to <laughs> eat for them, eating purposes heck yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but for religious purposes we're done with that yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the ceremonial laws, the hand-washing laws, all those things are done. Food laws, all those are done. And the judicial laws, all those are done. But the moral law doesn't go away. Yeah. So that, uh, so you, if you make that distinction, that threefold distinction, which is a traditional distinction that goes back to the early fathers, mm-hmm. um, then that saves you a lot of grief. And it's in the Word of God. It's not just artificial. It's not like we just made that up and, and applied it. We, it. It's in the scriptures uh, itself. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's why the people who want to bring back the ceremonial laws, traditionally, we've called them Judaizers. That's the traditional Christian category for people who want to. So when you bring back, when you see these uh, groups, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, uh, sort of Hebrew restorationists. There's a word for this. Oh, group. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I can't think of the name of it right now. Hebrew but these people, nationalists, something like that. Uh, it's close. Yeah, the people. I'm sure somebody's yelling at their at their phone right now. You <laughs> morons! Right. They're it's driving called, in their car, and yelling. And yeah, <laughs> it's called X. Don't everybody knows that? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, one of my kids was in college, and I ran into this with a, a roommate. Black Hebrew Israelites I wanted to bring back the Mosaic laws, particularly the pardon. Black Hebrew Israelites. I just looked it up. Uh, yeah. It? Well, um, that's an offshoot. Zionists? Even, no. But you're close. I think I know um, what you mean, though. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so, so these move those movements are are you know we uh, classically we've described them as Judaizers, people yeah. who want to put us back under the ceremonial law, mm-hmm. and then the theonomists want to eventually in the future, typically not right now. Uh, why right now? Why right now? Uh, why they don't want to want to do it right now? I don't know because not like God is. Right. If God has ordained that the judicial laws are still in force, then on what basis are you waiting? Right. right. I mean, as I read the Old Testament, he's a little God gets a little testy with people who who wait. Oh, let's not do this right now. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think God has a, a, a way of dealing with those people. Um, so uh, uh, anyway, uh, but oh, they want to wait until uh, things are more favorable. More people have been converted. They're looking forward typically to a future conversion of a lot of people. And then we're all going to voluntarily put ourselves back under the Israelite uh, uh, judicial laws. And that's theonomy. They, um, that they're looking forward to that. And of course, th- this is a, a theory that was uh, first articulated in the early 16th century by a guy who was a crazed Anabaptist uh, named uh, Karlstadt. And uh, um, Karlstadt uh, postulated this and Luther rejected it. Uh, it. The Lutherans officially rejected it in the uh, formula of Concord. They actually directly addressed it. Calvin rejected it. And uh, all of the Reformed uh, rejected it. And then finally, the Westminster Standards, the Belgic Confession rejects it. Uh, you know, the, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, they're all typological. They're all fulfilled, and they're not binding on us anymore. 
uh, we say in, in, the, uh, in the Westminster or in the uh, uh, Belgic and in the Westminster 19.4 says uh, that they've expired. And the only thing that's binding on us is the general equity, which if we read that phrase in its original context, it just means natural law. So it only, they're only binding on us insofar as they agree with natural law. So if you can find it in nature, it's still binding. And it's not binding because it's mosaic. It's binding because it's natural. It's in the nature of things. And uh, so that's it. So, yeah, we, so that's why the Orthodox Reformed are not theonomists and we're not antinomians. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have to, you don't have to pick either one of those sides. If you say the Ten Commandments are not for today, you're an antinomian and you need to repent. That's a serious mistake. Mm -hmm. Antinomianism is a, is a really serious error. And there are movements that are antinomian. The, the so-called New Covenant theology, as far as I can tell, is antinomian. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the antinomian dispensationalists of the, the Zane Hodges and uh, Charles Ryrie, uh, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, that whole tradition, those people are antinomians. And they deny the abiding validity of the moral law. Now, mm. typically, if you ask those people, "Can I steal?" No, you can't steal. Uh, can I? Can should I? Is it okay to be an idolater? No, I no, you can't be an idolater. Um, what about lying? No, you can't lie. Oh, what can I do? Well, you can break the Sabbath. That's really what it comes down to. Mm. That, that goes into the magistrate pedagogic, pedagogical, and the rule. Those three subcategories of the moral law. Well, yeah, there are the three categories of the of the Mosaic law, right? The, yeah. Um, so, and they, they don't get that. If you don't make that threefold distinction, then people think that, well, when, when uh, Christ, uh, uh, they think that when Christ died, then the Moses went away. And that means that the judicial laws went away, the ceremonial laws went away, and the moral law went away. Mm -hmm. It all goes away. And then you find yourself in, you know, basically formally an antinomian, Right. Now, if you're substantially an antinomian and you say, well, yeah, I know I'm free to commit murder. All right. Well, you're a libertine and you're a nut and you need to be, you know, institutionalized or arrested, you know, whatever. If you, if you murder people, of course, you need to be arrested. If you think it's okay to murder people, you need to be institutionalized. Uh, but very few people will say, well, it's okay to murder. So really what we're talking about is people who are formally antinomian because they don't think the Ten Commandments are for today because they think when Christ died that everything went away because they don't understand that the moral law was given it in creation to Adam. When God said, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, that was a shorthand way of saying, love God with all your faculties and your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, and you say, where did you get that? I got that from Jesus who said, right? On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's the substance of the moral law. Yeah. And it's always been the substance of the moral law. It was the substance of the moral law for Adam and for Noah and for Abraham. And that's why uh, people were guilty even before the Ten Commandments were delivered at Sinai, as Paul says, hmm. because the, more, Jesus, the natural law was already in force. And Jesus reiterated in the New Testament, the Ten Commandments, but he, he did it, and Paul did it, and Peter did it. Yeah. Right? Um, so read Romans 12 and, and Romans 13, uh, particularly, and Ephesians 4, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Um, you, know, you see the Ten Commandments being re-articulated, sometimes expressly, you know, uh, word for word re-articulated, but certainly substantially. Mm -hmm. articulated. So, you know, the Sabbath is another episode, and I recognize that it is a difficult, challenging uh, question, but if you have a doctrine of creation, then it's less difficult. If the Sabbath is a part of the creational pattern, 
not the Saturday Sabbath, but a Sabbath principle is a part of the creational pattern. If there's both nature and grace, if grace hasn't wiped out nature, then there's, we should expect that there's still a Sabbath principle. Hmm. And this is what evangelicals struggle with. They don't have a category for nature. So they know down in um, Tennessee exactly how long the, at the uh, creation museum, they know exactly how long the days of creation are, but they don't have a doctrine of creation as a category. Mm-hmm. Right? That's sort of illustrative of where a lot of evangelicals are. Hmm. That certain things are wrong because they're against creation. That's, you know, as I say, that's why I'm opposed to gay marriage because it's against nature. Mm-hmm. That's the ground of my opposition to it. Mm-hmm. It's contrary to the nature of things because mm-hmm. I have two eyes still, and I can see how nature works. I had two children. My one, my wife did. We, together, we had raised two children, so I know how this works. That's the nature of things. Mm-hmm. Nothing's changed about that. Just because we live in an insane world. Right. Where you can't say that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Right. That doesn't change the nature of things. You can say I'm a bird. Go Well, fine. You identify as a bird as a thought experiment. Please don't actually do this because I guarantee it won't end well. If you jump off a 10 story building, you will quickly discover that you're not a bird. You're a <laughs> <Right>. moron. And, <laughs> and you're, you're, you're parasympathetic. Uh, um, Faculties will kick in and you're going to be filled with dread right up until. <laughs> and then you'll go from dread to dead. That's just in the nature of things. Yeah. Well, cool. I think, I think we covered just about everything you possibly can without going into even more detail further on for the mosaic. <laughs> but if, you, if you think there's anything we missed in the mosaic, I know we, we kind of brushed through the chapter, um, but anything that, that you see kind of generally wrong in people understanding mosaic or stuff that you want to say, Hey, keep on going with this line of thought or anything that you kind of want to end off the mosaic covenant with. Just understand what Paul said about Moses in Galatians three and, and meditate on that and think about that. So Moses is, if you're a Christian, Moses is your friend, right? He's not a guy you need to get rid of. He has a job to do and he did it well. Right? And, and that job is to remind you of God's holiness, remind you of God's righteousness, and, and also to remind you of his grace. But, right? Moses was also a gospel preacher. So learn to distinguish law mm-hmm. and gospel and let Moses be what he was. He could be a legal preacher, but he could also be a gospel preacher. Mm-hmm. And he did both things. So let Moses be what he is, right? The, the Mosaic Covenant, an administration of the covenant of grace and an administration of the covenant of works. If you think the new covenant is the only administration of the covenant of grace, and that it was never actually present prior to the new covenant, you're going to, I think, have a lot of trouble grasping this. But if you understand that the covenant of grace was always in with and under the types and shadows, from the time God said the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, right, through Abraham, or sorry, through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, through David, if you see that in the different mm-hmm. aspects of the covenant of grace as it was being uh, gradually, progressively revealed, you'll see the Bible is a wonderful unity, and the new covenant is the culmination of all that went before, and not an inbreaking mm-hmm. of something that had never been in history before. Yep, hence covenant theology. Yeah, this is reformed covenant theology. Yeah, there reformed are different covenant kinds theology. Of co- this, this is just basic Reformed covenant theology. I haven't said anything that's idiosyncratic or not widely held in the classic period of Reformed theology. 
That's no, definitely doctrine that satisfies. Yeah. So I know if people listen to um, Heidelcast or listen to Office Hours, mm-hmm. just kind of on a, on a, I mean, not necessarily a personal level, but yeah. How are, so after Mosaic, so how, like, how are your book projects going? How, like, is there anything that they can be looking forward to from you or where they can find you, places that you are available? You can always find me at heidelblog.net, H-E-I-D-E-L-B-L-O-G.net, heidelblog.net. There's the Heidelcast. If you just, if you listen to podcasts, you just use your podcast app and search for Heidelcast. You'll find 186 episodes Office Hours is a podcast I've hosted since 2009, and there's a couple of hundred, maybe more episodes of Office Hours, and um, you can find that easily. There's several Office Hours podcasts now, and so this is uh, wscal.edu slash Office Hours, one word, and uh, you'll find the, the Office Hours, the original Office Hours podcast hmm. is uh, wscal.edu slash Office Hours, and um uh, in terms of working, I'm my my big project right now is to try to finish this commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. I've been working on it off and on since, well, since the Heidel blog began in 2007. Wow. But I've been trying to get it ready for publication for about three or four years, and I've been mm. doing it without the benefit of a sabbatical. So I'm doing it in <laughs> January and in, and in the summers. I'm hoping I'm on 90. I just finished 94 today. I'm hoping to get maybe 95 done today and I've got to get to 129 so hmm. by the by the end of August. So I'm okay. close I'm close to being able to get it done and then send that off to the publisher uh, who will probably say, "Are you kidding? Get out of here with that. <laughs> this is not what we want at all." And then we'll see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen, but they they initially said that they were they they wanted it, so we'll see what happens. Gotcha. And don't you have one on, on first Peter too? I, yeah, that one is a long ways from publication. I haven't even begun to get that ready. I, I did actually hire someone to try to help me get some of this stuff pulled uh, together and published because there's probably 10 or 15 books on the Heidelberg that could be gathered together and uh, turned into books. I just haven't done that yet because um, it's just the Heidelberg is just me. Yeah. Um, I have occasionally people write for it, and I have a guy, the wonderful Wizard of Wit uh, of uh, of the Web, who. Uh, does the web stuff for me bless his soul and um that's it um so there's that uh we do have another volume coming in the classic reformed theology series that uh uh, three hitherto untranslated treatises that have never been published um uh, so these i think i will be really helpful um if you're interested in reformed theology you'll want to get this volume these are very reasonably priced volumes i don't get anything out of this neither one of us casey well casey when he translates gets paid for this but um but as an editor i don't get paid for it but uh i i do wish people would support this series it's called the classic reform theology series it's available through uh reformation heritage books it uh, it includes william ames casper olivianus johannes coxeus uh johannes heidegger jh heidegger and Robert Rollick is the latest one. Robert Rollick's commentary on Ephesians uh, from the late 16th century, 1590s, which people have found very edifying. Um, you know, people say, well, where'd you get this long gospel stuff? Well, one place you could get it is Robert Rollick's commentary on Ephesians. Hmm. And uh, these volumes are, some of them are in paper now because they've been out for a while. And they're, they're only in paper. But Rollick is available in hard copy. And I think it's like 20 or $25. And so... Uh, 
Hmm. That that's a that's a thing you can look for. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, heidelblog.net slash publications. That's where I try to keep people posted on what I'm doing hmm. in terms of publishing. But that's my that's my big project now to finish this commentary. You boys having a good summer? We yeah, are. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say. Also, for our new listeners, if you go in our archives and you find the first episode of season two Sparknote Seminary, you did the history of the Reformation for us. Oh, very good. Yep. Yeah. So this is yeah. what? This would be eight months after that? Okay. Yeah, it came out. Yeah, that's eight months almost today. That's right. November, it was November 30th. So this is episode number two with, with Clark. Yeah, very which, good. Yeah. So yeah, summer's been good here where I'm in Washington for the summer, um, preaching twice a week, every week for 13 weeks. So that's been, yeah. that's been huge for me. Yeah. And so, so you're getting to put to, uh, to use the stuff you're learning. You, now yeah. you find out that we, you thought we were kidding and making stuff up and <laughs> no. now, now you find out that, Oh, okay. They were, they weren't kidding. They, no, yeah, they, they weren't kidding. I was, I was all like, I mean, I was just prepared. Well, it's to say the, to say the very least to, put in the work for two sermons a, a week. Now you see the value of catechism sermons, don't you? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's Sunday, Sunday evening catechism. I mean, it's not like you don't do any work, but the catechism more or less outlines your sermon. For it you. does. Yeah. That's it's, you it's could much do like easier Mark, to prepare. You could do like Mark Driscoll and, and preach uh, gross, explicit <laughs> sermons on sex, or, or you could preach uh, guilt, grace, and gratitude. That's right. Yep. I, yeah. I know which one I would rather hear. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those... Just in case the listener's wondering, it would be the latter. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not, right. Not the former. Yeah. So, oh, very good. Yeah. And then Nick's just kicking in Orange County, raising his kid. Isn't that what yeah. everybody does in Orange County? Just kicks it? Does anybody actually <laughs> do? Anything they say raise the kid. Yeah. Oh, kicking it seems to be pretty much the full time yeah. vocation of everybody once I cross the county line into Orange County. You could actually, <laughs> it's like I, every, when I drive across, you know, so when I come into, uh, come on, what's the southernmost beach city? San Clemente. San Clemente. Yeah. Every time I cross over to San Clemente, I'm, I'm pretty sure I hear somebody somewhere, I hear a sound. It's like, dude. It's like, I know I'm <laughs> just I mean, beach chairs I'm, lining the highway exactly. from San Clemente. Yes. Yeah, I, I look up, I see Nixon's, uh, you know, the old Western White House up on the up on the hill there. That's the right. Hands. And um, that's beautiful country up there. I, I yeah. think I'd have a hard time getting anything done if I was in uh, if, if I were if I were on the beach or Orange County. It's a, I, I, I like Orange County, but I only go as far as Irvine now. Oh, I OK. I don't yeah, go any well, farther north because it's just too many people. Well, you're close <laughs> to me. You're, yeah. you're, you're in my somewhat areas you're not too far so Irvine yeah, was effectively born and raised there i'm i'm uh my instinct is to go towards ramona before it is to go to Irvine. <laughs> which yeah due east if people don't know where that is it's due east of escondido yeah that's uh it's a small it's a small town there's some cattle there's some horses and then once you get past ramona there's pretty much nobody yeah and that's uh that's ramona is super nice though the like the antique downtown area ramona is oh, great yeah. No, oh, that's uh, that reminds me a little bit of home. It makes me feel when I get homesick, I go to the uh, northern end of Ramona. There's some cattle and some horses, and and uh, it smells and looks and feels a, a little that's bit right. familiar. Yeah, yeah. I, I get I get nervous. There's just too many people in Southern California. I mean, I can't. I, there's 30 million people that live in California, and I just can't comprehend that. 
mean, it, it, it makes no sense to me. And every time I go north of, of Anaheim, you know, or anytime I'm on the 405, generally, I just think this is wrong. This is, <laughs> this is too many people here. It, well, you, even geographically, like the state boundaries is gigantic, too. So yeah, it is. So it's, it, people have no idea outside of California. They, people say, well, in California. And I think, which California? That's I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, there, there's you if you can go, you can go 12 hours north of me, literally, and you're still in California. And it's <laughs> completely different California. Yeah, it took us 17. No, it took us 21 hours to get to the southern tip of Washington from San Diego. But we were in California for 14 hours, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, you could easily go yeah, more than that. Because we've driven. Yeah, we've driven from here up to Medford and Lincoln City, yeah. Oregon and and um it's a it's a beautiful drive, you know, especially if you go up the coast. Once yeah, you get yeah. past LA, I mean, yeah, LA is um, the worst. Yeah, it's a, oh, it's, a, it's an abomination. They just, just carve that out and let it float. Just horrible because because I, I, because I don't I you know for me it's just a huge obstacle. When we drive home, I have to find a way around it. Uh, we we were very blessed. We got to Vegas without too much trouble. We got we got home because we have to go you know to Vegas and then then the northeast from there. But um, yeah, we've gone way out to the desert. You know, you go straight east and then make a left and go north in the middle of, yep. of the Mojave Desert. I've done yep. that even to try to avoid Los Angeles. It's just, <laughs> one time way out there. we were once six hours getting through L.A. Oh. We, got, we ended up on, a, on the 66. We got off on the 66, yep. which is a surface street. Yep. Right. Just trying to get out of L.A. because I, I don't know what happened. Something terrible. Yeah. Years ago. We were four hours. This is before that many people, so many people lived there. In 1986, maybe, we were four hours outside the John Wayne Airport. And that was before there was anything. That was all there was in that part of Orange County was the John Wayne Airport. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, anyway, so anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, we're, yeah, we drive back in a month and I'm not looking, that's that's the worst part. Is I don't, I don't mind anything up until LA and LA is the worst. And we, we get it back in San Diego the day before classes start, and I'm oh. terrified of driving through LA. Oh no, it's it's I get tense. I get tense. I get angry. It, <laughs> um, just thinking about it makes me tense. Because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's I mean, honestly, it's almost a problem. People, you know, I'm I'm turning down everything until I finish this book. But you know, when people say, "Do you, do you want to come up and preach?" and I always I think to myself, "Do you have a helicopter?" <laughs> If you could helicopter me, I would be there. I've heard Dutch people have money though, but they're frugal. Well, yeah. So I, I mean, I just, yeah, you know, and going up there on a Sunday morning is fine. That, that's not a problem because yeah. nobody's up. But by the time church is over, they're all awake, and every <laughs> single one of them's on the freeway. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't it's have like, to go to LA. You don't have to go to LA. Come visit us in OC. That's yes. right. Go to yeah. Go to Orange well, County. I mean, People want to, yeah. you know, they invite me to come preach. And I mean, so I have, you know, Long Beach or Torrance. Um, so I don't know. And um, where uh, uh, Christ performed in Anaheim and yep. whatnot. But anyway. Cool. Well, thanks, Dr. Clark, for coming on, for talking about Thank the you. mosaic with us. This is, it can be a complex topic or it can be a simple topic, but I know there's some confusion out there. So thank you for talking about this and sure. how this relates to other covenants. And hopefully people learned a lot and then have a better understanding that the that the Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace, but it's not itself necessarily just the covenant of grace. That's right. It's got a dual character. And if you can grasp that principle, 
then you'll you're on your way. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't really think that's inherently difficult. No, no. It's just right? most, I, don't think- I think most evangelicals think either the mosaic is no longer in force at all in any bit, or it's everything. Yeah, it's one of the two. Yeah. yeah it's- and if you yeah, so if you can avoid that, yeah, you're 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 doing well. Yep. Sweet. Well, thanks, boys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And we will see you listeners again next week for the Davidic Covenant. Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.